you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. When we think about CQ Drive, one of the key components is extrinsic interest. It can be a desire to uh, change the outcomes uh, around data analysis, around EDI. And I mentioned earlier the statistic of Asian students dropping off education. And we heard about women. uh, We we know about women that a lot start architecture education. And that's proportional to the population. So you get about 50% of women starting architecture education, but they leave at every stage but what data should we collect is it even worth it uh, when we see the problem and we hear anecdotally there's a problem so why do we need data and what stories can we tell about that and what's the purpose and what's the power of those stories well to chat through this with me is Mac Mac along of the Equal Group and wallpaper journalist Ellie Stathaki. Uh, Mac if I can start with you by asking what does the Equal Group do? Thank you. Uh, thank you firstly for inviting me onto the show. Um, essentially, the Equal Group is a diversity and inclusion consultancy. We specialise in data, um, typically helping organisations to obtain as much um, quantitative and qualitative data around equality, diversity and inclusion as possible. Possible. Typically, that starts with an audit. So we help companies to really improve their um, response rates in terms of staff engagement surveys. Um, but again, asking both qualitative and quantitative questions to understand who's in the organization, demographic makeup, you know, position, tenure, um, but also matching that with how they feel because it's um, pointless having kind of great amounts of diversity if the experience isn't universally positive. Exactly. I, I always speak to that. And, and Mac, I mean, you know, my, my journey through uh, believing that data is important has been quite a significant one mm. because I've always really like, look around you. You can see what the problem is here. You know, why do you need the data? So why do you need the data? Again, it is really just giving context, you know, the presence and or absence of individuals isn't the, the be all and end all. It's really about how those people feel, how, how you interact with them. Um, but the data can tell you so much around where you need to, to spend your time and attention. You know, one of the things that we often see with equality, diversity, and inclusion generally is a lack of progress. Um, and one of the things that we accredit that to is a lack of data. You know, how do you know what issues you're trying to fix? How do you know when you've started to make progress? How do you know when your initiatives are failing? Typically, there's been a lack of data collection, a lack of data anal- analysis that allows you to give that depth of, of um, credibility to the work that you're doing. You know, you wouldn't um, you wouldn't look at finances and discard the data and pretend that you're or assume that you're doing good without the data to back up how good you're doing, where you're doing well, where you're not doing well and where you can make improvements. Um, we typically compare kind of equality, diversity and inclusion to a weight loss journey. You know, if you're on a weight loss journey, 
it would be redundant not to measure your progress. It would be redundant not to weigh yourself or to, to measure yourself. Um, so you can really be specific about the diet that you um, then take up, the, the types of exercise that you do. It all depends on what the data tells you about where your significant problems are, um, but then also where your ambitions are as well. So unless you have targets, unless you have a clear vision in mind of where, where it is you want to go, um, it becomes problematic or impossible for you to really target your in initiatives in the right way. That's exactly how I feel about targets. You've got to know where you are so you can know where you need to go. Exactly. Um, and it's a really interesting uh, analogy, the weight loss an analogy. I, I talk about in becoming inclusion fit, the same as getting inclusion fit. You need to be motivated to get off the couch, etc. Yeah. So, um, and, and also that piece about the, the, the checking yourself and the scales, it actually can be a motivator mm -hmm. as well to say, well, yeah, I need to, I need to do better. Now, did you... Is, how did you come into this work? Yeah. Because did you set out to become a DNI data expert? Not in my wildest dreams. Um, it's it's uh, an interesting, or I think it's an interesting story. Um, essentially, my background. I do too, which is why I've invited you to answer it. <laughs> it's always a, a risky position to take to say that something's interesting because everyone might think the opposite. Um, but my background is in the energy sector, so I spent ten years as a regulatory consultant. Um, and within that role, you know, a lot of my um, position was focused on helping executive teams understand the regulatory environment. Um, the energy industry has a plethora of data, you know, data about um, pipe sizes, how long pipes have been in place, wires, the length of wires, line loss factors, just really technical, super geeky things about, you know, the, the length of meters and the capacities and um, efficiency ratios and all of these really really um technical calculations um but it allows them allows us as an industry to really focus our time and attention in the right direction um it also allows us to understand where the need is for intervention um but during my journey in the the energy sector i'm not sure how much you know about the sector but it's not great for diversity um but I've, as i moved up the the industry i started getting a little bit more frustrated at being kind of the only person of colour in the room, the only person that didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge or private school, um, and started having more conversations with leaders just to understand whether I was being overly sensitive or whether it was an issue that was was widely um, seen and acknowledged. Um, and what those conversations led to is that um, leaders did acknowledge the issue. They, they understood that it was, there was an issue. They didn't necessarily know what they could do to change things. Um, and that was also... Um, also went hand in hand with a, a little bit of a political fear. So people didn't necessarily want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, um, which led to a kind of a, you know, a wait and see approach. As I looked more around at the, the diversity and inclusion space, I found that nobody was really measuring data. We were kind of moving into this area of just doing quite arbitrary things for, for kind of for the sake of it. So doing annual unconscious bias training with no expectation of, of where that training would take you, no expectation of, you know, what the end result is uh, in terms of what you're trying to see across your organisation. Um, so essentially off the back of those conversations, just started really looking at what data do we need, what data um, is available. We found that there, there wasn't much available. So we essentially set out to help companies get that data uh, and bring it to life a little bit more. Now, Ellie, um, just listening to Mac there, it's clear that the telling of the story 
around what that data says is really important. So tell me about some of the storytelling that goes along with that, because dry data, I mean, you know, you get you, you appear to get quite excited about technical things there, Mac, but uh, not everyone does. <laughs> hundred uh, percent. And um, I, firstly, just to say thank you so much. It's such an honor to be part of this um, program. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm, I'm going to be open. I'd say like when you told me, oh, Ellie, come and talk to us about data and statistics. I was like, what? Really? <laughs> because, I mean, you know, uh, we don't, I suppose it's not like numbers is not the first line of reporting that we do a um, our wallpaper. You know, we might include uh, statistics here and there, but it's not really, we're not driven by that in a sense uh, that we don't kind of report that. But as you say, um, numbers can be fascinating and um, they uh, help draw attention to things. They make you sit up and kind of take notice, um, which um, helps me, I guess, pick up a story to start with, um, and then um, it helps you map out a landscape. However, as you rightly said, uh, I, I feel people are generally more kind of compelled by stories than by numbers, or rather the numbers make you pay attention at first, but then what keeps that attention and what, what is it that makes you like motivate you to do something further. And I think that is inspirational people, inspirational buildings, inspirational stories, well, buildings in our case. Um, so it, it is the kind of essentially, I suppose, case studies or, um, you know, stories that come out of these numbers that help um, maintain people's attention and stay with you. And um, in a way, it's this inspirational stories that we like to report in a wallpaper that will say, oh, I, I remember this. I read it in a wallpaper or I remember, you know, that story was about this person who did this thing rather than, you know, the specific number that was behind it. And certainly that's that's the case, isn't it? That it's the, the storytelling around the data that uh, perhaps is the the, the bigger driver rather than necessarily the numbers itself. Would you agree with that, Matt? Yeah, definitely. I think context is everything. And, and this is one of the reasons why we do a lot of cross-sector work because um, we can't get into the, the fall into the trap, sorry, of assuming that some issues are just with an organisation. Sometimes they're sector-wide, sometimes they're, they're geographical when we're looking at kind of gaps in data and also interventions that need to be made. You know, there's no point one company in a sector doing well and everybody else failing. There's some of the, the challenges need to be tackled at a sectoral level. But the context that data gives us and, you know, for, for a kind of insight, when we talk about data, we're not just talking about the numbers, we're also talking about the, the qualitative. Um, and that's really about, you know, the the messaging, the story, the framing that comes along with it. I think one of the things that we found is that even when people do have data, they're not leveraging it in the right way. So it is about how do you tell a story that compels people to act, you know, numbers in and of themselves aren't necessarily going to tell you what you need to know. Yes, and uh, I can't remember. There was one um, economist, I think, whose his quote is, there's lies, damned lies and statistics, yeah. which you may well be aware of that particular quote, um, Mac. And, and isn't there a danger? We can spin our numbers any way we want. The, you know, I guess as an economist, yes, there, there is that danger. You can put all kinds of, of theory behind numbers and um, speculate as to you know, why why certain numbers are, are the way they are. And I think we've seen a lot of that in this space, you know, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion. You know, one of the things that we found with regards to recruitment is a lot of people hiding behind the, um, you know, quote unquote, 
talent pipeline or the lack of talent in in certain communities um whereas when you look a little bit deeper the talent is there it's just that you're looking at it through a very narrow frame which doesn't allow you to see the potential talent or the talent that actually exists um mac um what kind of data can you reasonably ask for this is interesting that you phrased the question in that way um reasonable is kind of all relative right um and again it talks to the reasoning for wanting the data i think a lot of companies fall in the trap of just wanting data for data's sake rather than wanting data to make a change um and similarly to what we were talking about earlier if you want to make a change in a certain area you'll need data in that certain area so if you want to change your recruitment statistics it's vitally important to get your recruitment statistics if you want to change employee experience it's an employee experience data that you need. Um, so I've, I've not really answered your question at all, <laughs> but um, what we advocate for companies is to get as much data as possible. However, I'll caveat that by saying that there has to be a change that comes as a result of, of getting that data. A lot of employees will resist being asked for data initially until they see that the data is being used in a meaningful and purposeful way. Mm. Um, a lot of a lot of companies have issues with trust. So, so how do they assure their employees that they they can be trusted with that data? One of the things that we always say is that trust is built up over time. You know, when you see positive changes, when you see that that data is being used in a meaningful and positive way, you're more likely to trust your organisation with your data because you know that actually you believe in the vision. Vision and, and talking to, to Ellie's point before you. you believe in the narrative that is forming around that data. So identifying gaps and then working towards narrowing those gaps is part of that journey as to demonstrating that you can be trusted with that data. How okay or not is it for an organisation to guess at people's characteristics? It's definitely not okay. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, virgin on the immoral um and we we have had a couple of horror stories especially in relation to kind of gender pay gap where you know companies found themselves in a position that they weren't collecting the data had no means of tracking it in a meaningful way um and then resorted to to guessing in some cases um based on people's names which unless wow yeah it's just just a minefield of, of issues that that creates yeah, I, I think, you know, if you can see someone's, um, you know, you're also guessing at gender as well mm-hmm. uh, in some cases because not everyone identifies in a, a binary way, even if exactly. they might f- have a name that's traditionally one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, Ellie, uh, you know, spin. <laughs> I'm not going to make you stand and, and, and speak on behalf of all of the media, um, but certainly, you know, how, how often do you see um sort of statistics propping up a story or just trying to uh you know create a particular narrative which may or may not be true i mean yeah there's there's definitely danger um in that which is why it is important to kind of i guess look at the context where the number comes from you know and i i i am always trying to be kind of super cautious of this myself um because also media is a very kind of fast um, moving environment. So you often need to respond to things quite quickly. Um, so you have to make sure that where you kind of get your numbers from is a you know reasonably reliable source, uh, you know, the samples um, that are correct. And it's often not about the numbers themselves, but also how they are 
represented and how what how they are interpreted i guess which um yeah kind of has various layers of you know people's intentions and also like unconscious bias various things that come into um kind of reading things but yes i, I i'd say it's definitely something we have to look out for and are responsible for as media yeah i think it's it's, it's not just about the the numbers i think when you were talking about kind of the quant qualitative context um you know one of the things that we spent a lot of time looking at originally was kind of definitions because when we look at definitions of, of racism for example um coming from the the oxford english dictionary typically written by white middle-aged middle-class men um and you find that the definitions included in those those formal contexts are somewhat lacking um so we really need to scrutinize everything that goes alongside the data you know it's not just about the the kind of the numbers but also the qualitative context uh, thank you for, for actually mentioning that because uh, Dr. Pragya Agrawal, who was on yesterday talking about unconscious bias, and myself are, are planning on, on trying to address that issue of the way that dictionaries define race and racism. So watch that space. I don't know what, what's going to be involved in that, but we're certainly talking about it. Um, what What is actually involved, though, in an EDI audit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so I think... I can't speak for all service providers that, that provide EDI audits. Um, typically, we start with the, the context. So it's about what do you as an organisation want to achieve? And really, that's tying equality, diversity and inclusion more um, holistically to your mission as an organisation. Um, what's the direction of travel that you're going in? What is the problem that you're trying to solve? Um, and how do we make that relevant for all people? We then go into to organisations to work on comms. So, you know, what Ellie was talking about there in terms of making it interesting for people, you know, the, the narrative that goes alongside that. What is that for your organization? How do we align that to your tone of voice? You know, what what are the typical comms platforms or infrastructure that you use to communicate so that this message of, of EDI coming out isn't alien, isn't seen as separate, isn't seen as kind of something that is totally detached from the organization or what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, we then provide a uh, kind of independent platform for organisations to do the survey on. Um, essentially, it's a survey that looks at both the qualitative and quantitative, so um, all protected characteristics, as well as some inclusion questions. And we work with organisations to define which questions they want included in that. So it's completely bespoke to the organisation, um, completely centred around what they feel that their primary issues are or what their primary concerns are. Um, as a means to shedding light on the, you know, the significance of those issues um, from a quant quantitative perspective. Um, then we analyse that data and, and anonymise it. So making sure that individual respondents can't be identified because that's one of the things that breaks down trust. You know, if you perceive the fact that your manager is going to know that you don't actually enjoy your work or you, you have problems with kind of um, with that person, it may be, um, you know, it may be challenging in terms of how open and honest you are. So we, we provide anonymity as standard um, and make sure that that continues to be the case when we come to reporting. Um, we produce a, an online platform that allows individuals, so everybody within the organisation that has been part of that audit has access to the information that's been collected about them and their colleagues so that they can see what's going on in the organization in their department at their level in the organization but we also accompany that with a written report a written narrative around 
where we feel the priorities are for you as an organization, um, what interventions you should be seeking to make in order to um, really align where you are as an organization with where you want to be. But in something like architecture, and I'm sure Ellie will have a point, it's, it's not particularly diverse. <laughs> There's a reason for my job, the reason for this oh, radio yes. station. Um, so, I mean, what it, it, we need data on everything, don't we? I mean, yes, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are working on it, hopefully, as we speak, <laughs> to amend that. Um, but yes, and, and as you say, like data, very important, but, and, and it is only the first step, right? Because they are the thing that will spring broad kind of other things and help you kind of come into action, right? Well, that's that's the plan. But, you know, it not being like you spoke about the energy sector, not being, uh, you know, very mixed in, uh, environment. Um, there, there are many in architecture who who do work in, in mixed environments. And, and, and but, the, the, you know, pipeline um, is, is, is an issue. Um, the uh, way that people have progressed is an issue. Uh, the way that the products and services of architecture is created is problematic and then uh, you know how people engage with clients and uh, procurement other stakeholders and so what you know you say what you say you, you tailor it but then what data that should there is there a basic standard of what people should be collecting unfortunately i think it'd be a lot easier if there was um some of the work that we're doing across the, the energy sector and also starting to do more work in, in the construction sector is about creating that baseline creating that minimum standard, if you like, of data that needs to be collected. Um, so we've recently won an award for our work across the energy sector. So working with 50 organisations on comparing and contrasting quality, diversity, inclusion data. Um, we're in our second year of collecting and um, visualising that data. The first year found that there was a distinct gap in terms of the recruitment of black, Asian, minority, ethnic candidates into the sector. Um, so at application stage, they were represented at the 21% level um, and looking at the number of people that were given jobs um, following that application process, that then um, reduced to 10%. So we found that there's quite a clear drop off of, of black, Asian, minority, ethnic candidates that wasn't wasn't reflective of kind of the the overall um, journey across the sector. So that's something over the last year we've been working with the sector to try to resolve. Um, and then this year, by by the end of this year, we should know more about kind of what how that gap has, has closed, if it has, or, or what further work needs to be done. Um, but in answer to, to your question, there is no set standard, but I think it's something that there is room for um, that conversation across uh, a sector to understand what is it that we want to to achieve um, and how do we go about ensuring that all organisations can contribute meaningfully to that? There is a real clamour at the moment for meaningful data. I mean, I'm being pushed all the time from all sorts of people, not only internally, whether it be it's, you know, the competitions team or, or, the, or the panels for awards or um, uh, the um, members asking, you know, we want to collect data, what should we collect? I mean, uh, how important do you think it is, um, Ellie, to, to make sure we, we get this right in, in the sector? I, th I think it's very important. Um, I mean, as I said, the numbers are the starting point for kind of everything. It help They help you, um, they motivate you to do something and they help you understand what the situation is now and where you're trying to go, as you said earlier. Um, 
it's also, I think, quite important to remember that, it, sadly, it can be quite a slow game. So you need time to collect the data for things to progress. Um, I mean, I understand, obviously, that there's a very urgent need for like things to change. But at the same time, I think it's quite important to make sure that enough time is spent to do things properly, almost. And how do we build that trust, do you think? Is there something about the storytelling in order that we can ensure that that the people whose data we're collecting, which is which will be everyone, feels like, you know, it, it, it'll be used well rather than this spin or or some kind of, uh, you know, uh, sensationalist way of it being presented. I mean, yes, again, I mean, I think that's <laughs> that's a tricky balance, and and hopefully, I mean, I. I'm speaking for ourselves, uh, you know, as a magazine, where hopefully you have kind of built a certain trust with your audience and they come to you for a certain reason and they know what you're going to read in, in your magazine is, you know, kind of um, accurate and represents, you know, kind of in good faith and good, you know, kind of good research stuff that um, I guess helps them understand, the, you know, what, what is happening and helps inspire them. Um, but, yeah, I mean... There's... Oh, go on. Yeah, no, I was, I was just going to add to that. I think the the tendency for people to, to think about it as spin or to, to not trust it is probably linked to how it's framed because I think a lot of the time equity, diversity and inclusion is framed around a specific characteristic. So when we go into organisations and we ask them, you know, what do they understand diversity and inclusion to be? they typically say, you know, it's it's about gender or it's about ethnicity, or it's about disability. And really it's about all of us, you know, all of us to some extent have some elements of, of difference. All of us come from diverse experiences, diverse um, walks of life. Um, and it's really about widening that frame of reference to ensure that everybody feels represented in the work that goes on. This is why we frame it in terms of a universally positive experience. So as organisations, we should want all of our staff to have a universally positive experience and not feel that their experiences are limited based on their protected characteristic. Similarly, when we're talking about the end user and the consumer or the, the service user, we need to be framing it around everybody having a universally positive experience, regardless of what their background is, regardless of what their protected characteristics are. And I'll make that parallel in terms of where we are in the energy sector. Everybody consumes energy. So it feels... Um, it feels really quite weird to, to, you know, I was trying to, to think of the, the terminology, but it's really quite weird that the, the, the leadership in the, the energy sector doesn't represent the whole, the whole um, population because the whole population routinely uses energy every day, whether they want to or not. Mm. And similarly, uh, we all live around buildings. Yes. And just to add just a little bit to, I, I, I guess it also kind of goes back to um, sort of that balance you want to get as a publication of reaching the audience and getting people interested and engaged, but not being sensationalist, as you say. So it is about how you treat them and telling real stories and stories with like human interest. But I think, you know, up to a point, people can tell if you're using the facts in a kind of, um, you know, sensationalist way. 
Thanks so much to Maka Longe of the Equal Group and wallpaper journalist Elise Dothaki talking about data as a driver for EDI change. Now, though, at uh, Reba, we've been working with an organisation to ensure that CQ learning is actually implemented. Uh, and the way that we do that is using the uh, transfer of learning into action coaching. And the way we've done that is actually by tracking with data how people are progressing. Emma Weber is CEO of Lever Learning, and we've been speaking about the effectiveness of that method. So our role at the RIBA has really been to help people put into action what they've learned when they've been on the CQ training. And it's been really exciting to work with all levels of the organisation and people are having a combination of telephone follow-up support using our methodology that we call turning learning into action. Um, some people are having just telephone, some people are having telephone paired with our coaching chatbot. And whether you're working with a human or the chatbot, you all use the same um, behavioural change methodology, we call it. So it's been great to work with the RIBA and really help people shift the dial on those behaviours. So can you tell me a little bit more about that turning learning into action? How does that actually work? What's the purpose of it? Yeah. The whole idea, sort of a big picture for learning in general, is that it's very easy not to implement what we've learned when we've been on a training program. Um, and that's nothing to do with the, the brilliance of the training. That's actually just human nature. The the challenge, particularly with, with CQ, is helping people find ways that it's really actionable so that they can then move forward. So the, the methodology is designed of three parts. Preparation, which is when you create your action plan and get really clear out of the training. What is it that's most important to me? What's really resonating with me where I think I can make a difference? And Marsha, the only person that really knows the answer to that question is the individual themselves. So it's really important that that's actually created by the individual in their context. I always say only the individual knows their brain and their context as well as anyone. We can never kind of fully work that out. So you have the preparation phase. The action phase happens over a period of time when people then either have their learning break or their chats with Coach M or their phone calls. And then finally, it's the evaluation and data stage. Now, that's the model that we kind of created. And when I first created that model 15 years ago, the data was very much summative at the end. But what we find now is there's actually data that can be useful to us throughout the process right from the very beginning. And one of the interesting things about CQ Drive is that we've noticed that data really can be a driver for change. So tell me about your personal journey in terms of understanding how important data can be when trying to motivate a change. So my background is in behavioural change. My passion is for behavioural change. And we used to do data as a bit of a it just has to be done. We didn't really care as much about the data as we did the people. And it wasn't really until the last maybe even a couple of years, Marsha, and you know I've been running this business now for 19 years, so a bit embarrassed to announce that on Reba Radio. Um, hopefully everyone will forgive me. We're all, in, we're all learning in something. Um, and this whole concept that the data could actually be as important as the behavioural change and human connection itself just really, really challenged my thinking. 
And I was almost kind of like, no, we're not going to be focusing on the data because it's all about people. But what we've actually realized and actually come to experience is exactly as you say there, data can be a really powerful way to almost for people to cognitively start to latch on and realize and identify and just kind of strengthen the ideas around what's happening to then actually create the behavioral change. And I think that happens both at an individual level when we receive different different types of data and also, of course, at an organizational level where we can start to identify you know, risks or patterns that are then happening, which, of course, can then inform decisions that will create outcomes for the better. Such an interesting point, because I think I've always been similar where I felt that, um, you know, data. Yeah, you can see what's happening in front of you. Why do you need the data? But it's really clear that in order to monitor and track the change and be able to inform the change as well, the data is really important. But also I've been challenged around the idea that data can drive the change. It can be the the instigator for for change and i think that's where my personal viewpoints have been challenged because actually data has been shown for some people to be that hasn't it absolutely because that can be a reason that they then decide to take the action there's a number of facets um, i think when we come to data so one of course is imploring them the individual to to change their behaviors The other thing is that the data can help us actually identify bias and assumptions and really ensure that we're not um, just going through what we kind of see in in front of us to actually check, sense check that with the data as well. So there's a lot of different elements that come in. The other thing I love about data is it can actually happen in really simple forms. So part of the process and, and, you know, people that have gone through either with Coach M or with the team will be doing a lot of scoring on their goals just on a scale of one to 10. And even though it sounds really, really simple, once you've given your goal or your behaviours a certain number, you then pick another number perhaps where you're moving on to. And then you can ask the brain to try and describe to you the gap in between the two. And what it's actually doing, it's a much faster way to actually clarify that gap rather than just kind of verbosely going through each individual piece and really arguing it out. There's something around giving your brain numbers that actually just helps it identify and then you can kind of pick the pick the pieces out. So, it, you know, it's fascinating on many levels. And so what outcomes have you seen as a result of being able to track change in this way? The interesting thing and the great thing is that the outcomes are really personal to each individual. But what we have found is people know that they're moving their goals forward and can then actually describe what change has happened for them. And for some people, that change may be in um, some personal relationships, personal conversations, in you know challenging others around their CQ. Um, and other people, it's in, a, it's in a work setting. It's the way they're relating with their colleagues. It's the way they're changing, changing dynamics within conversations. So there's really, it's, it's different for absolutely everyone, which of course then is why it's, you know, it's great to have the numbers within, within that data. Um, but of course, you can also then start to go forward with things like your sentiment analysis if you're actually analysing, you know, specific sentences. And of course, all data anonymized and um, aggregated only. But there will be um, 
as we have further data coming in, some really interesting trends, I'm sure, that come out of deeper types of analysis. What outcomes do you think is, is like the, the ultimate when it comes to gathering data and moving people forward with change? So I think with an individual, there's the data part, as we said, where it can actually help motivate people and give them the insights. There's also the benefit that you're actually then sort of tracking your own changes with your own data as you as you go through and kind of making your stories and truth behind that data of what's actually happening for you. So there's a way that we can impair our own individual journeys with that data. I think it then becomes possibly more so or definitely equally as important for the organisation and with the organisation to actually be able to identify if the dial is changing on things that they are looking to change and also identify areas where it's not changing and therefore what else can they do to support or create that change. And, you know, again, it can be across a whole host of different areas, areas or topics. But I think it's actually just giving it that visibility that then enables you to be able to create the insights from that information. The information itself isn't enough. The insights then isn't enough. We're going to talk full circle here. The key is when you've got those insights, putting it into action. So it's so it's kind of a, a chain. That was Emma Weber, CEO of Lever Learning, explaining how data can help drive learning too. And thanks very much to Makalonge earlier and Ellie Stathaki from Wallpaper, uh, who were talking about their perspective on data and storytelling around data. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. <laughs>